being here this morning on this Labor Day weekend. Um, I know lots of people have Labor Day plans and are traveling and all sorts of things going on, uh, but thank you guys for being here this morning. I trust that as we encounter uh, Christ in this place and we hear God's word this morning, that God would be at work in our hearts and minds. I'm going to begin by um, reading a passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 8 that we'll be talking about this morning. So I'm going to read that and then I'll pray for us and then we'll move on from there. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today, Um, God, to worship together to hear your word proclaimed, to pray together, to sing together, um, to celebrate baptism, to take communion together. God, thank you that we have this opportunity. And I pray very specifically during the time that we have that you would continue to work in our hearts and minds to draw us close to you. I pray that in this place, Jesus would be lifted high and we would be drawn to you because of that. Um, God, I I recognize fully as I stand on the stage that um, the words that I would say are of no importance whatsoever. But God, the words that you would say are of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that we would hear your words, that you would use me as an instrument of grace, instrument of the gospel, that you might be glorified, that we might meet with you in this place. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you guys a question as we get started this morning. Have you ever had an experience where the expectation of what was going to happen during that event or that thing never really matched up with the reality of what you were hoping for? If you ever had an experience where your expectations did not meet reality, maybe it was a trip that you went on, a vacation, uh, a class that you took, a date that you went on, anybody? Um, A movie that you may have seen, I remember 
the first and the only time that I went deep sea fishing. I was on vacation with Amy's family in Florida, and Amy's dad, who's in the back over there, uh, arranged for us to go on a deep sea fishing trip. And in my mind, what deep sea fishing meant was one of those cool boats, you know, where you sit in a seat in the back. You know what I'm talking about, like you see on TV? And you throw your, you know, you cast the rod out into the ocean, and within five minutes, you're catching a big sailfish or, you know, something cool, and you fight it for two hours, and it's just a really cool experience. Well, that's not what happened. So we go, and we get on this boat, and there's a rail all the way around the boat, and you had to pick your spot. You had to bait your own hook. I'm like, I, we paid to be on the strip, but you had to bait your own hook. You had to throw, um, you had to get your line out in the water, and all that was fine. But we got out into the ocean, and we got into some waves. And to make the story really cool, they were like 15-foot waves. They probably weren't that high. But we were out in the water, and the boat was rocking. And um, just over the course of the experience, or over our course of the time on the boat, uh, I started to get seasick. I have never been seasick in my life. I grew up at the lake. Um, there's a big difference between a ski boat and a deep sea fishing boat, evidently, but I grew up at the lake, had never been seasick in my life. Amy began to get sick as well, and it was just, you know that experience, right? If you've ever been seasick, it's terrible. And so we're over on the side of the boat, like, trying not to throw up into the ocean. I mean, just to put it bluntly, um, Amy's sister is, uh, she's here as well, but Amy's sister's in the back eating a cheeseburger the whole time, like nothing's going on, and uh, I'm trying not to die. So anyway, the reality of deep sea fishing that day didn't match up with my expectations. And because of that, I've never been deep sea fishing again. Um, maybe one day I'll get brave, but, but not today. Um, last week, we started a new series called A Leader Worth Following. And specifically in this series, we're focusing in on the book of Matthew chapters 8 through 10. And Matthew chapters 8 through 10 are, are really a follow-up to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is tell people, tells people to build their house on the rock, not on the sand, the rock being what Jesus has taught them. And in Matthew chapter 8 through 10, uh, Jesus is teaching his followers to build the li their lives on the truth of his word. And as a part of that, he's confronting the world with the truth of the gospel, with the truth of who Jesus is, with the truth of what Jesus is about. And during this uh, time, Jesus is calling his followers to follow him no matter the cost, no matter how difficult, build your house on the rock, follow me. And so the natural response would be to ask, why should we follow Jesus? What makes Jesus a leader worth following? What gives Jesus the right to come to us and tell us, to follow him. And last week, Ben started in the first part of chapter 8 to uh, teach us a little bit about the authority that Jesus possesses. And we saw that in the way that he healed in, in a couple of different healing events where he healed somebody with leprosy and, and just a couple of other things. And this morning, we're going to take a look, or, and I read about just a second ago, a series of events that continue to demonstrate Jesus' authority over the world, over our lives over nature, over demons even. But I want to go one step further than just talking about Jesus's authority 
this morning, and I think there's something else we need to see. So let's look back at Matthew 8, 18 through 22 real quick. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I guarantee you that neither of these two guys, when they came to Jesus and said these words, expected the response that they got from Jesus. Jesus directly challenges their statements of commitment. Jesus directly challenges their expectations. And the fact that Jesus directly challenges their expectations is a reminder that oftentimes our expectations are built around what we would have rather than what Jesus would have for us. The first man who approaches Jesus um, the scripture here tells us that he's a scribe. That means he was probably uh, a professional teacher, um, a professional scholar of some sort. And he comes to Jesus, and in verse 19, he makes a sweeping statement of commitment. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. But consider Jesus' answer right away. Jesus doesn't say, thank you, I'm so impressed by your commitment. Jesus looks past the man's words into his heart and he realizes that the scribe has no idea what he's saying when he says these words. Jesus essentially says to him, thank you for wanting to follow me, but you don't even realize that I don't have a home or a bed or a place to lay my own head. We don't really know how this guy responded, but like I said, we know that Jesus saw past his words and saw into his heart and saw something there that needed to be confronted and examined. This guy was excited about following Jesus, but something in his heart needed to be checked, and that's what Jesus does. You know, the reality of the fact is it's probably not true just of that guy, but those of us who are, have been a part of church for a long time Sometimes we can be really excited about the idea of following Jesus, about discipleship, but we're not really prepared for the reality of what that looks like. Um, and, and in this case, as Jesus confronts this guy, it's not that having a home and having a place to sleep is, is bad, but Jesus looks past his words and says, you have to be re ready to let go of the most basic security that you may have, nothing not even a place to live, as good and appropriate as that is for all of us, can have greater authority in the life of a Christian than the authority of Jesus. And that's sort of where Jesus goes with this guy right away, checks his heart. That's the reality of following Jesus, right? Are, are we willing to hear and obey Jesus wherever he might call us? Do we truly believe that Jesus has the right and the authority to call us wherever he wants? to do whatever he tells us? Are we willing to follow him into the service of hurting people whose lives are messy? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves to follow Jesus in loving the unlovable? Are we willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus? The reality of following Jesus is that sometimes it's difficult. But Jesus isn't in the business of meeting us on our own terms, right? His authority means he gets to set the agenda. 
He gets to determine reality. And reality is that life, when we follow Jesus, is sometimes difficult. Our expectation may be that when we come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. It's not always that way. Bad things happen. Life gets difficult. I read this morning in the book of Psalms in chapter 34, where David writes that the afflictions of the righteous are many. Uh, The reality of the fact is that following Jesus is difficult, and Jesus checks this guy right from the get-go. The second guy who approaches Jesus here is identified as a disciple. That means he was probably somebody that was following Jesus around. He had seen Jesus perform miracles. He had heard Jesus teach. He had been around the other disciples and people that were following Jesus. And he comes to Jesus with a request to be allowed to follow him after he's able to go and do some other stuff. A quick reading of the story makes Jesus appear very insensitive when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, right? It seems like, whoa. The cultural practice of Jesus's day leads many Bible scholars to think, though, this man's father wasn't dead or even about to die. Uh, What was probably happening was this guy in a very customary way or a very traditional way was um, essentially saying, Uh, I've got a duty to fulfill to my parents. And so after I fulfill that duty, then I'll come and follow you, Jesus. One scholar has said that he's putting in a request for indefinite postponement. As in, Jesus, I want to follow you, but not yet. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I got some other stuff I got to take care of first. He is coming to Jesus and saying, I have other responsibilities. I have other duties. And when I wrap those things up, then I'll be able to follow you. Uh, And Jesus' response, once again, goes directly to uh, his authority in our lives and his authority to call this guy to come and follow him. No matter how good and appropriate some other responsibilities may be, Jesus checks his heart and says, even the good responsibility of caring for a parent can't get in the way of your commitment when it comes to following me. It's not that taking care of The parent was a bad thing. It's that Jesus says, I have the authority and I'm calling you to make me first above anything else. When we do that, we know that scripture teaches us we have some responsibilities um, to our parents, to our children, to other people and family members and, and spouses and things like that. But Jesus says, I'm first. Being Jesus' disciple means that Jesus' call takes priority over everything else in our lives. And so what the man in this story is actually doing, right, is putting Jesus on hold. And we shouldn't misunderstand what Jesus is saying because the main issue here seems to be that this guy is saying, I have some cultural expectations to fulfill before I follow you. And Jesus says, I'm not worried about your cultural expectations. I'm worried about you following me in our society, in our culture, in Augusta, Georgia in 2016, or wherever you live, there are cultural expectations around you, right? There are cultural expectations of what life should look like, how much money you should make, uh, maybe what kind of car you could drive, where you you should live, all, all those things. We're all familiar with those things. We fill the pool of those things uh, all around us all the time. And these things are not in and of themselves wrong, but they can be driven by the values and norms of a fallen society 
a fallen world, a fallen culture? Are we willing to let go of any of them? If Jesus calls us to follow him in a different direction, are we willing to put everything on hold to answer his call when Jesus says, I am a leader worth following? Now, before we uh, move on to examine the next few verses, um, let me just clarify this real quick. Um, I would be remiss if I did not. Following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, being obedient to what it is that he's called us to, these things are not the means by which we gain salvation, right? Jesus paid the full cost of our salvation at the cross, and he offers it freely to us. We don't have to work for it. There's nothing we can do to earn that salvation. Jesus secured it for us. Jesus offers it to us. And when he offers it to us, he offers it on his terms. And his terms are, I paid the price for you. I was your substitute. You can be saved because of what I did. And so Jesus is calling us first to belong to him. And then our life of discipleship is in reaction to what Jesus has first done for us. His terms are that we belong to him first, and then our obedience and discipleship follows that relational identification. It's the, the, cost of di- the cost of discipleship is living a life of freedom and obedience to God's word. It's increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence of Jesus. But first, we... Um, come to Jesus and, and we come to know him and we develop a relationship with him. And following Jesus probably will, won't look like we think it will look. It will probably be different. It will probably um, be more difficult than we ever realized. But that doesn't mean there's a problem with Jesus. That means there's a problem with our expectations. And Jesus is in the business of overturning our expectations. Let's move on and look at a couple more verses. Matthew chapter 8, 23 through 27. Let me read them again. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? I shared an experience earlier about deep sea fishing and how my expectations of what that looked like didn't meet reality. Well, I just happened to have another boat story um, that I'm going to share with you as well. A long time ago now, uh, Amy and I had an opportunity to go on a cruise with her family as well. And we went on this cruise through the um, Caribbean. And while we were on the cruise, um, the waters, where we were, were just really choppy. Uh, and one particular night, uh, I just remember, like, it's just big waves and the boat's sort of shifting back and forth, you know, like this, it's a cruise ship. And we were walking through, um, we are walking sort of through the lobby or whatever it is in the middle of the boat, uh, going to a theater or coming back from a theater that was on the boat or something. And there was a fountain uh, in the lobby. And I'll never forget that the boat was shifting so much that the boat would shift and the water in the fountain would all rush to one side of the fountain. And then it would shift back the other way and the water would all rush back this way. And um, when I saw that, I began to get a little scared. 
quite frankly. Um, so we went back to our room. It was nighttime. We were going to sleep. And I remember laying in the bed and feeling the boat just rock like this. And I was literally praying, God, don't let this boat fall over. I do not want to die in the middle of this ocean. Um, now, for some people, that may not be a big deal, but it was a big deal to me. I honestly thought the boat was just going to tip over and that was it. I was going to die. Um, but it wasn't quite that bad. It was probably more me than anything else. Um, so I don't really understand the concept of sleeping on a boat in the middle of a storm. But that's what Jesus was doing. And Jesus made the world. Jesus made the storm. So he's good with it. Uh, but it doesn't make sense to me. It works for Jesus. And the essence of the story that we have here is that Jesus says, let's go across the sea. They get in a boat. Jesus is tired and he goes to sleep. And a storm comes up and the disciples get really, really scared. What's surprising to me about this is if you know uh, a lot about the disciples that were probably traveling with Jesus in the boat is half of them were probably fishermen. Um, And so it's not the first time they've been in a boat in the middle of a storm, but something um, scares them enough that they go to Jesus and wake Jesus up and say, we really need you to do something. In the book of Mark, after Jesus calms the storm, it says that these men were terrified. They were scared enough to wake Jesus up and ask him to do something about the storm. But after he calms the storm, it says the men were terrified. The book of Matthew here uses the word marveled instead of terrified. The concept is the same. And I wonder, what did the disciples think that Jesus was going to do? Right? They obviously thought he was going to do something because they woke him up and said, Jesus, do something. But why were they terrified? That's a little confusing to me. I wonder why they were more terrified after Jesus acted and calmed the storm than, he wa- than they were during the storm. The same thing happens in the last section of this passage that we read. Um, I'm going to skip ahead and read it and then come back to uh, talking about the storm for a second. But at the end of Matthew 8, when Jesus sends the demons out of these guys into the pigs, in, in verse 32 it says, And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the waters, and the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So Jesus does something that no one else can do. He takes care of these men. He, um, the scripture says that, that they would just avoid these guys. And so Jesus takes care of the situation, just like he does with the storm, sends the demons out, the pigs run into the water, and the people just want Jesus to leave. The disciples were terrified. What's that about, right? And so when talking about the disciples being terrified after the storm, one uh, pastor, a guy named Tim Keller, answers the question of why they were terrified in this way. He says they were terrified because they realized that Jesus was as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm had immense power and they couldn't control it. But then when they asked Jesus to do something, they realized that Jesus had immeasurably more power than the storm. And because Jesus had infinitely more power, they had even less control 
over what Jesus could call them to do and who he could call them to be. You know, there's a big difference between a storm and between a person, though, right? A storm doesn't love you. Just this weekend in the coast of Florida, um, over the past few weeks in Louisiana, we've seen uh, how destructive water can be, how destructive a storm can see. We've experienced this in the past, you know, 10, 15 years in our in our nation with Katrina and Andrew and other storms that have come through. The power of water on the move is really amazing, right? When water starts moving, there's no holding it back. There's no containing it. Um, every time I'm at the ocean, I look out over the vastness of the ocean and think about um, really how scary it is. Uh, it's incredibly beautiful to stand on the beach and look out at the ocean. At the same time, I start thinking, what happens if there's a really high tide? What if the water starts coming? What if my car gets destroyed? <laughs> Silly things like that. But when you look out at the ocean and you realize the power that it contains, you realize there's no managing it. There's no holding it back. Nature is overwhelming. Its power is unmanageable. But Jesus, even more so, there's no managing Jesus. There's no making deals. There's no coming to Jesus on our own terms. There's only coming to Jesus on his terms. And sure, once we come to Jesus, well, once we're following Jesus, uh, Jesus may let things happen that we don't understand. He doesn't do things according to our plan or in a way that makes sense to us. But his power is unbounded, just like his wisdom and just like his love. Nature is indifferent to you, but Jesus is filled with untamable love for you. If the disciples had really known that Jesus loved them, if they had really grasped the fact that Jesus loved them, if they had understood that he is both powerful and loving, then they would have known they had no need to be as scared as they were. So their fault was not that they woke Jesus and said, Jesus, do something about the storm. I don't think that's why Jesus rebuked them. Their fault was that they feared the storm more than they trusted the maker of the world. Jesus, despite the fact that these men were trusting their fears, meets them clearly right where they are in the middle of that fear and introduces them to something immeasurably more powerful himself. Like the scribe at the beginning of our passage, like the disciple um, that wants to follow Jesus at the beginning of our passage, Jesus goes straight to these guys' hearts, and he moves past the outer layers of fear and misguided expectations and shows them the reality that they needed to see. The reality of a Savior whose love and power and wisdom and grace is unmatched, whose authority commands that we worship him, even when our expectations are different than the reality that Jesus brings about. Is Jesus a leader worth following? Our scripture introduces us to the fact that Jesus' call on our life is sometimes difficult, it sometimes hurts, it sometimes costs us. 
But Jesus has the authority to call us to those things. Is Jesus a leader worth following? Even though Jesus' call on our life is difficult and it hurts and it costs. Our scriptures this morning are clear that Jesus' power and his love and his grace and his mercy are immeasurably wonderful, much more so than anything else we can imagine. And so let me bring us to a conclusion. In this passage and throughout the Gospels, you see this over and over and over. Jesus takes the truth of who he is and he applies it to people in ways that stand directly opposite to the circumstances of that individual. To the scribe, when he says, I want to follow you, Jesus says, your life's going to be hard. He doesn't say that to everybody who says, I want to follow you. He says it to that guy. To the disciple who says, let me first take care of my family, Jesus says, you can't have any other priority than me. To the guys on the boat who are trusting their fears, Jesus introduces them to someone way more trustworthy, way more powerful, way more full of love and grace and mercy for these guys. When Jesus confronts people with the gospel, with the truth of who he is, with the good news of who he is, and applies it to their life in the middle of whatever situations they are in, some are fearful, some turn away, some repent and follow, some rejoice, some become aware of what is being asked of them and leave, and some become aware of what is being asked of them and stay. Just think, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, there's story after story after story of Jesus confronting people right where they are in a way that's directly opposite to where they are. Think of Nicodemus and Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler and all the different ways that, God, that Jesus takes the truth of who he is and applies it to people's life. Jesus confronts the world and calls us to follow him. That's what he's doing over and over and over throughout Scripture. That's what he's doing right here in Matthew. But when Jesus confronts the world, when Jesus confronts us and calls us to follow him, he does so on his own terms, and his terms are not negotiable. People, culture, movements, values, cities, churches, they all change. Jesus doesn't. The unmanageable, the authentic Jesus cannot change and cannot be controlled. When Jesus calls us, he makes demands on our life that are personal and costly. He overturns our expectations, but he is always more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. And therefore, Jesus is a leader worth following. I'm reminded, I've heard this illustration over and over and over and over for the past several years, but uh, I'm reminded of this illustration where um, in, the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the children asks if Aslan, the lion that's uh, representative of Jesus in Scripture, asks if Aslan is safe. And the answer that the child gets is, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's true of Jesus. So what am I calling you to do this morning? I'm calling you to follow the leader that's worth following. And that's going to be applied differently to everybody in this room. 
There's some of us in this room who have never followed Jesus to begin with. And so the call on our lives is, what does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus? There are some of us in this room who, like the disciples, are trusting our fears more than we're trusting uh, the creator of the world. And so the application to us is, um, what does it look like to trust Jesus in these circumstances. For some of us, like the disciples, like the, scri- like the disciple and like the scribe at the beginning of the passage, uh, we're not willing to hear what it means to follow Jesus. And so maybe the call for us this morning is to reflect on what is it that Jesus is calling us to do? What are we hesitant about um, in Jesus's call on our life? I, I don't know where the gospel is meeting you this morning. I don't know in what ways um, the Holy Spirit is confronting you with the truth of the gospel, but I know that it's happening. And so I would encourage you um, to reflect on those things and to see and to think about what it means to follow a leader worth following. We're going to move into a time of response, um, and this is what happens during our time of response. Uh, in a second, when I'm done, um, praying in just a minute. The band's going to come back up here and lead us in, a, in some songs and give us the opportunity to worship through singing. So we'll have that opportunity. Uh, also during this time, um, there's an opportunity for you to sit where you are, to reflect on what we've heard this morning, to respond to it in whatever ways God is calling you. Uh, if you need to pray with someone or talk through these things, um, there'll be somebody in the back, probably on both sides of the room, um, they'll have an orange lanyard or an orange tag that says, can I pray with you? It's somebody that you can talk through this stuff if, if need be. Um, during this time as well, there's an opportunity for you to give. If you're a part of Redemption Church, there's a giving table in the back where you can give as an act of worship, um, as Jesus calls us to. Uh, and during this time as well, we're going to celebrate communion. And so we celebrate communion every Sunday here at Redemption. And the reason we do that is that communion is a visible sign that Scripture gives us of saying, I believe the gospel, I believe what Jesus did for us, and I'm proclaiming to everyone around me that I believe it. So when we take communion, we're remembering what Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming that we believe that it's true, that we believe the gospel. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, regardless of whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come and take communion, to take some bread, tear it off, dip it in the wine or juice, but recognize that when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm remembering what Christ has done for me and I'm pronouncing that I believe it's true. And so if that's not something you can do, we would encourage you to stay where you are. And there's no judgment in that. It's just we wouldn't want you to call we, wouldn't want you to, we don't want to call you to do something that you can't proclaim. So there'll be people up here to help facilitate communion. Um, you can come down the middle aisle here and then move in each direction um, as we take communion. So um, also throughout the course of this year, uh, we've been praying for certain things to occur in our church and in the city of Augusta. Um, if you've been here before, you've heard us do this. Uh, So even as I pray to move into this time of response, I'll be praying for some of those things as well. Um, But let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning um, to meet in this place, to hear from you, to worship, um, to be together, um, 
and God, for you to be at work in our lives. And Holy Father, even now as we move into a time of response, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and lives. I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high, that we might be drawn, um, that we might be drawn to you. God, over the course of this year, we've prayed for you to be at work in the city of Augusta and in our church to see several things happen. God, we've prayed to see a hundred people come to know you as Lord and Savior as a result of the work of Redemption Church in our city. We've asked you to see the gospel advance in our city. We've asked that our missional communities and DNA groups would replicate, that leaders would be raised up in our midst, um, that our church uh, would become more diverse and more reconciled to the world around us, that we would look like your kingdom. God, we ask all of these things um, not because uh, we want to claim that we've done anything, but God, that you might be glorified, that people might come to know you and live a life in response to what you've done. God, we pray that that would happen. Thank you now for this time of response. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.